Hey, Road to Life, we love you. We're so glad to be back together on our podcast. This week, we're hearing from Pastor Micah Shepline. We love when he comes and visits. So make sure you give this podcast a listen. For more information, visit roadtolifechurch.com and we'll see you next week. That you guys have been talking about um, original design and specifically even uh, too strong talking about the the armor of God and and really kind of what I wanted to get into today and and I know what Pastor Mike's kind of been doing with with targeting more strategically and unpacking original designs of different kind of biblical principles is what I want to get into de- to today is two stories uh, that are not talked about really at all I don't think I've ever really heard any sermons on these two um, guys specifically but really run parallel to each other in Scripture and and really focus on. I would say like a perfect outcome of your life and really a perfect posture of your life versus maybe a more imperfect one, but the characteristics of each one. But before we get into that, you know, as I was thinking about, like I said, that too strong and and this original design concept is I think that a lot of the times when we come to church, right, it's like, you know, in the beginning, it's like we're drinking through the fire hose. Where it's like, you're like, okay, I got to read my Bible. I need to pray. I need to worship. I need to go to church. I need to give. I need to, and it's like, it can be just a tad overwhelming. And I know that because I've been here and I was, a, I've been there and I was a pastor's kid, right? So what I mean is, is that I think a lot of the times what happens is, is we come in and we're, and we're looking at, uh, at all these things that really are, are Christian things and not bad things to do. And we're almost in our minds, whether you want to admit it or not, you're prioritizing like, okay, is this one a little bit more important? Or should I be doing these three, four, or five? Or what kind of, what is the, the boiled down brass tacks of what it means to just do the quick three things that kind of label me as a Christian follower? And, and really kind of what I want to unpack today behind these two stories is really a lifestyle that works up to a place of strength. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of the times what we're not looking at uh, within the context of of really biblically following God is that it's not this laundry list of punch things, but it's this gradual working up and adding different levels and adding different layers and, and getting into new environments and adding community and adding and adding scripture maybe a little bit more in depth rather than just reading one chapter, whatever it looks like. There's not this cookie cutter, you know, give it all exactly how it should go for every person. And I kind of equate it to um, a little bit when I was wor- when I was a young person, all right, I graduated and I got into ministry because I didn't make it into the NFL. <laughs> and some of you guys are like, wait, did you have aspirations? Yes, just like every kid in St. Joe or Bering County, right? It's like, dang it, we're not going to make the NFL. Okay, what are we going to do with our life? It's like senior year, we've graduated. We have no tryouts with the Packers. <laughs> it's like, I don't even have an option for a walk-on at Notre Dame, which we barely squeaked out in Michigan. We all got our prayers in last night, I guess. St. Joe didn't get enough of them, though. Um, <laughs> but, but here's the deal, right, is we, we all have these, like, aspirations and then I didn't get there and so what happened is is I was like okay well you know I've been tiny my whole life so I'm gonna start working out and so what I did is I called the biggest dude I knew and his name was Timmy Jarvis he came here for a lot of years and he probably might listen to this another time when I tell him I'm talking about him but uh 
I remember I called him and I still had my aspirations. Like I said, if it wasn't the Packers, then I would take any other, you know, class B organization in the NFL. And, and I was like, you know what? Can I work out with you? Now, Timmy, if you knew, he's about, at that time, I think he was like 5'6", probably like 230. Um, and I was about six foot 145. Now, I, now, things have progressed now. If you're looking at me now, you're like, dang, are you 145? No, I'm not. I'm 205, but I have been slightly working out, but then I moved and things have just happened. Anyway, uh, but I remember I called him and I'm, I'm working landscaping at the time and he says, you know, you could start meeting me at the gym. And so he said, all right, we're going to meet tomorrow and the first thing we're going to do is leg day. And I'm like, okay, great, because I have chicken legs, always have. And so I call him and I'm like, all right, I'll be there. And so we show up and Timmy's the type of guy that sends me pictures of him doing the, the leg press with no room. So he's loaded every single place you can load with 45 pound plates and then has his wife and two other guys sit on the top of it in the gym and then leg presses that. So that wasn't gonna be me. But when I walked in, I remember looking at him. I said, so what's the goal today? And he looked at me and he said, a thousand reps. And I looked at him and I said, I don't think I've done a thousand reps of legs in my entire life up to this point, like combined all the days I've ever lived. And he looked at me, he goes, no, today, it's, that's going to count warm up, but you're just going to count every rep and we're going for a thousand. And I remember just thinking, I said, you know, this doesn't sound like the best idea, but I'm along for the ride, I guess. And long story short, I did not make it. I actually threw up in the parking lot, I think after like 600 and my legs were just, you, you ever felt like your muscles like detach from your bone? So like your bones are holding you up, but your muscles are just going back and forth. <laughs> it's like. It's like I needed a stretcher at that point. I think I had a manual car too, so driving home felt like I was getting amputated. Uh, it was just, it was not a good time. But what it was, was I stepped into this environment where somebody who had dedicated their whole life to living a certain way, I tried to do exactly what they did, and ultimately it didn't, it, it didn't crush me, but it crippled me. <laughs> And what I'm saying today, though, is I feel like a lot of the times when we come to church or we come into these environments, what crushes our spirit is that we can't do a thousand reps. And in the process, we miss out on maybe the one we can do well. And some of us, what we're doing is we're coming here and we're wondering why we, why we feel like a failure, why we don't feel pure and holy, why things are not lining up how we want them to do. And God's like, listen, can we do one thing well? And then can we do two things well? And then maybe down the road, can we do three things well? And see, some of us, were getting so confused on some of these elements. And, and what happens is, is we never actually get the strength to stand. Because all we've been focusing on is just trying to get strong too fast. And getting strong fast is not a recipe for success. It's not sustainable. So what I want to do is I want to focus on two guys in the Old Testament and their names are Nabal and Ornan. Now, once again, many of us are probably like, okay, never heard of those guys' names. Perfect, that's what I was going for. But it's a story about King David, which everybody, if you've been in church long enough, you know the story of King David. King David is a guy who obviously is one of the uh, preeminent kings in the Old Testament. He's an incredible man of God that follows the Lord and, and truly is, is a 
trailblazer in terms of resetting the children of Israel back into the culture of who they were called to be and created to be. But along the way, he has these run-ins. And the reason I want to examine these stories is because they almost have very parallel Uh, what I would say, um, characteristics, I guess. When you put them next to each other, they almost sound like and tell a similar story. And so what I want to do is I'm going to jump in to Nabal, and I want to read specifically, like I said, and focus on the characteristics of his life, and then we'll go into the life of Ornan. So it says this. We're going to read in 1 Samuel 25, 2 through verse 17, 15 verses. I'm sorry, but we can make it today. Is that all right? Okay, good. From the six. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. Now, pause, right? Immediately, what I need us to notice about Nabal's life is, hey, Nanny, good to see you. Love you. She, she showed up late too, Matt. You're not alone. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but what I want to focus on right out of the gate, though, is this, is that characteristically, I would say that Nabal's life is one that from an exterior perspective of not knowing the man, most of us in American culture would say, ooh, I would like to be like that. I mean, how many of you guys know if the first sentence said about you in the Bible is that you were very rich, chances were that you weren't returning your bottle deposits. You, you had some cash. Now, what's funny is, is it actually breaks down, and I'm going to give it to us in these terms. He had 3,000 sheep. Now, if you break down the averages of what one sheep costs nowadays, he's got about 750K just in sheep, right? Which, to me, sounds a tad excessive. And 1,000 goats, right? He's got 1,000 goats. What that actually translates into is 500K in goats. So we've got 750K in today's terms in sheep and 500K in goats. So he's over a millionaire just in, you know, farm animals. (laughs) Which if you're a millionaire in farm animals in here, I'd love to meet you afterwards. (laughs) Sounds like some work. Anyway, he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man... The name of, this, uh, of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. Now, how many of you guys know? Let's, once again, let's, let's unpack this. He's wealthy. He's wealthy beyond, really, everybody knows him because of his wealth, because to be a multimillionaire back then would be like being a trillionaire today. He's got a beautiful wife who's discerning, and everybody's like, dang. So how many of you guys know he's checked the boxes? He's wealthy, and he's got a great wife and family. The only problem is, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. Now, focus there for a second at the very end. He was a Calebite. Now, here's what you need to understand about that is that means that he's actually a descendant of Caleb that can trace his lineage to Caleb, which if you didn't know this, Caleb was of the tribe of Judah. So actually somebody who could trace their lineage directly to Caleb, that's, that's kind of a big deal because if you know anything about the Old Testament, there were only two spies that came back with a good report, Joshua, who took over for Moses, and Caleb. They are guys that are viewed as pillars of faith. So this man has every reason to not be harsh and to not be badly behaved because his lineage is back to one of the most faithful, righteous men in all of Israel. So let's, let's unpack this again. This man is wealthy. This man's got a beautiful, discerning wife. This man can trace his lineage in faithfulness and righteousness. But here we are sitting at badly behaved and harsh. Let's continue reading. 
David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace to be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds who have been with us, and, we, and they did, did no harm to them. And they missed nothing all the time they were with us in Caramel. So once again, I'm going to add context here. Is David is actually, at this time, he's not reigning as king. He's a man who's living out in the wilderness with kind of like this de facto army. And essentially what he's saying is, go to Nabal and tell him that his guys were with us and we protected them and made sure they had everything that they need. Their herds were not picked on, which, I mean, let's be real. If you've got a herd of thousands of animals... I would venture to say that somebody could maybe steal one or two. So what David's essentially saying is, hey, we took care of them. We made sure they were protected. We made sure they had everything they need. Let's just see if we can get some sheep wool from them because we didn't ask them for anything to be paid for. We just did the right thing. Verse 8, ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give what you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Now, I'm not saying that he didn't know who he was because David at this point is famous. This is after the point of Goliath. This, at this point, many of you guys don't know this, but they were singing songs of David as a commander in Saul's army that Saul kills thousands, David kills ten thousands. He is literally, he's a big deal. And most of the people actually know that he's out in the wilderness and, and accumulating this army. And not only that, that he's been anointed and called as, as to be the next king. So Nabal is not just looking and saying, who is this guy? He's looking and saying, who is this guy compared to me? Who is this guy that thinks he can come to me and tell me what I'm going to do? Who is this guy who thinks he can ask of me that I'm going to give to him? Verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to the men from whom, uh, who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on your sword. Now that just sounds like a perfect first line for a war movie. Right? It's like, let's just watch a trailer where it's like you just see Ed, the commander turns around to a whole army and goes, every man, strap on your sword. I would venture to say Nabal maybe was shaking in the boots. Right? So what's going on is he looks and he's like, David goes, what did he just say? All right. We're about to have 1.2 million in sheep and goats, boys. <laughs> let's go. Right? Let's keep reading. And then it says this, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet your master and he railed at them. Yet the, man were yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the while while we, while we were keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against his whole house, and he is such a worthless man that I cannot speak to him. How many of you guys know, if, if you're being described like this, you, 
just come up after. We really, we need to get a lot of people around you and pray over you. <laughs> That's my, I haven't preached in three weeks and my throat's getting a little dry. That was a joke, guys. Um, but how many of you guys know things are not looking good for, Na- for our boy Nabal? Now, I'm going to actually cut to the chase and paraphrase the rest of the story. It actually says that Abigail goes behind Nabal's back, grabs pretty much everything that she can physically find, throws it on a ton of donkeys, and runs out and meets David as he's strapped on with the sword. They are strapped and ready, and literally goes, hey, so sorry there was some confusion. Um, Here's everything we have. Like, how many of you guys know walking up to an army of 400, and they look ready to throw down, and you're like, hey, guys, (laughs) guys, Heard my husband was, uh, had a rough video. It's like, you, you guys want this? <laughs> what happens is David takes it and he goes, okay, you know what? This will be fine. Turns around and leaves. And it actually says that Abigail goes back to tell Nabal, but he's having a, a party. And he's, he's literally drunk. And so she knows that she, he can't coherently gather what's going on. So the next morning she tells him and it says that his heart dies inside of him and 10 days later he dies. The fear and everything, knowing what went on, literally it, it, his, his heart died inside and within 10 days the man was dead. Now, once again, let's get back to characteristics. He's got money. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got the ability to throw parties and have a great time but he's got bad character and he's a worthless man. And actually after he dies, what you find out is that David sends for his wife and Abigail marries David and brings all of his wealth into David's life. So once again, I wouldn't say that this is a positive story, but characteristic of the American dream, I would say that this is fitting. I mean, because once again, if we think about the context He had the beautiful wife. He had the perfect career in the finances, but he didn't have the character. Now, here's what you need to realize, though, is that Nabal's name means wilt. And actually, if you look in the Hebrew, is it's a word picture for failure or something that doesn't have the ability to stand. Isn't that just so interesting? I love whenever the Bible, and this is just a, a newsflash for some of you guys. If there's ever a reference to a name in scripture, always look that up because there's typically a meaning behind it. And so his name means he was wilted or, or he, he failed so much that he was not able to stand on his own, right? And what I'm trying to get at essentially today is that he had everything, but he wasn't able to sacrifice maybe even a little of what he had to the embetterment of other people. He had everything from the exterior perspective, but he had none of the character development needed to stand on his own two feet because wealth won't stand for you, a beautiful wife won't stand for you, a, a faithful and, and righteous lineage won't stand up for you. You have to stand up for yourself. And so what I want to talk about now is the story of Ornan, because this one, I think, is a lot of the times missed in Scripture, and I think it's very important to talk about. And in this one, what you find is that David is now established king. And this is, we're going to read this in uh, 1 Chronicles, but it's actually uh, 
found in 2 Samuel as well. And so what we're going to find out, though, is Ornan at this time is, is a, just a nobody. And what happens is, is David kind of has this egregious sin. And what that egregious sin is, is he decides one day to go out and number his army. Now, many of you guys are like, why is that an egregious sin? It just sounds like a census, which those are kind of annoying. I had a lady show up three times at my house for the census, which, Matt, I think I was on the phone with you one time, and she, like, walked up to my door. I'm like, hey, can I help you? She's like, I'm here for the census. I was like, this is the worst time humanly possible. I need to be 16 places. Let me have a 42-page interview on if I actually live here. Okay, sweet. But anyway, he, <laughs> you guys get bonus material. Like I said, three weeks of jokes. Uh, and so what happens, though, is that he has this census, and God essentially goes, your strength isn't in your numbers that you can count. Your strength is in me. And so what he's essentially saying is you've gotten to the place of pridefulness in your heart where if you know what you have, you don't think you'll need me. You'll rely on the numbers and not rely on me. And so what happens is, is he gives him three options of which a punishment is to ensue for the sin. And David picks one where essentially there's going to be a severe plague for three days where people are going to die. And what you actually find out is that there's literally an angel that comes down and is killing thousands of people for this sin to prove, hey, that the numbers are not what is important. It's the following that is. I'm going to say that one again because it's important. The numbers are not what's important. Maybe it's the numbers in your bank account. Maybe it's the numbers of what you feel, whatever piece about whatever. No, it's me. And so as this angel is literally wiping out thousands of people, David cries out and it's, the angel stops on that over Ornan's property. And it says that David musters up his forces and runs to Ornan's property. And this is where we pick up. Now, the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now, pause. I need you guys to understand some interesting details first, is that Ornan was a Jebusite. If you know what a Jebusite was, it was when they took over the promised land, those people were supposed to be exterminated because they weren't actually grafted in followers, children of Israel. They were people who they looked at and said, these guys have no relationship and had, should have no part in the inheritance. So Ornan is not a... a certified died in the wool Jew or one of the 12 tribes and actually in New Testament standards he would be classified as a Gentile one who is far from God not raised within the context of knowing Yahweh and so what happens is, is literally they run to meet this guy and he's a Jebusite and it says this. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angels and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, give me the side of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to God. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Now let's add imagery here. Literally, Ornan is looking up and seeing an angel and it actually says later that the angel puts its sword back in place after the, this, this all happens and go, retreats. 
But essentially, he has sent his sons to hide because they're looking at this angel and they're like, we are going to die. And what happens is David shows up and goes, hey, I want to buy an, or I want to pay for an altar. I want to buy what you have so that we can create a sacrifice that can appease the sin in which we've had in the land. And it says this in verse 23, then Ornan said to David, take it and let my Lord, the king, do what seems good to him. See, I even give the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. I'm not even going to read the rest. I'm going to paraphrase it, but I need you to understand the importance. See, currency back then wasn't, you know, you have a bank account and you go to Chase or you go to United or you go to, to First Source or whatever it is. Back then, it was your property and it was your land. So Ornan, and not only that, but what an inheritance was actually, if you look, even at the story of, of um the son who was just an idiot and squandered everything, the prodigal son. If you look, when he went to his father, he said, I want my inheritance. And his father had to sell off what he had in order to give the money to him. What I'm essentially saying is that everything around was, it was an agronomic society. It was your land, it was your crops, and it was your animals. Now listen to what he offered. He offered his land, he offered his crops, and he offered his animals with no hesitation and said, you know what, just have it. Now think about this. We know that he has four sons. Essentially his lineage, he offers. His place in society, he offers. His crops, he offers. The threshing sledges, that's essentially what makes up the threshing floor that allows for it to even be used to, to cultivate wheat he offers. See, actually what you notice is essentially the only thing he didn't offer was his sons, but essentially everything else he said, you know what, I'll just give it. Whatever you need, whatever the country needs, whatever the people need, whatever you need, King David, it's yours. But what's interesting is David essentially looks at him and says, you know what, I can't offer a sacrifice on something that costed me nothing. I must pay for this. And actually, out of Ordin's willingness came a blessing. And that blessing in today's terms, actually, if you break it down, it was a certain uh, amount of gold, I can actually tell you. Uh, it was 15 pounds of gold, which was 600 shekels, which broken down today would be about $400,000. So essentially what happens is, is David goes, you know what? Thank you for being so willing. And thank you for essentially saying, I'll sacrifice everything. And because of that, you get a blessing. See, isn't it interesting? The first story we read was, I have everything. I don't need to sacrifice because I don't need a blessing. The, first, the second story is, I'll sacrifice everything, not for a blessing, but because I know it's the right thing to do. And I think a lot of the times this is where sacrifice comes into us nowadays is I'll sacrifice based off of what's on the other side. I'll sacrifice based off of what it will get me in return. I'll do a thousand reps, but tell me exactly what the muscles will, that will be strengthened are and what that's going to do for my everyday life. And more what I'm trying to get at today is that you can have everything 
and it could be the greatest curse you ever had. But as long as you have everything and you're willing to give it away and sacrifice it for whatever God asks of your life, that's where you see true lordship. And today what I wanted to talk about as I get to the title with one minute left is yours, mine, and ours. Because I'll be honest, this is where I feel like a lot of the American church can, can reside, is this is mine, this is yours, God, and I guess this is ours. And Ornan's story is wrapped up in the ideology that there is no yours, mine, ours. There is just God's, and it's all his, and I trust everything. To live a life where you gave it all. Where you sacrificed everything and just said, God, it's all yours. Everything I've ever built, everything I've ever done, I'll hold nothing back. I think that's the greatest relationship we could ever have. Is that when we read stories of the Bible, we see ourselves in them. Because that's what it was created for. It was created for you to be able to look and say, God, I'll model this story. God, I'll live this life. God, I'll be that person. You know what Ornan's name meant? One who rejoices. You know, I'm not going to lie. When he's offering everything in that moment, do you think he's living up to his name from our secular terminology? Absolutely not. But from kingdom terminologies, I'll sacrifice everything as one who rejoices. Man, I believe that that was the greatest imagery that we could talk about this morning is that he sacrificed everything as one who rejoices. May be that how we look at Jesus, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, bearing our shame. Do you think there was anything about the cross that was enjoyful? Absolutely not. But on the other side was a promise. On the other side was a blessing. And I pray today more than anything, like I said, as I wrap up my thoughts, is that we would be people who look and say, God, I won't have everything to the point where I don't need anything from anyone or will not give to anything to anyone either, including you. But rather, at any moment, at any place, at any time, the one step we take today, the first rep that we hit or machine that we get on as believers is, God, it's not yours, mine, and ours. It's all yours. My parting thoughts are this, and this is just my challenge to you today. How do you get from yours to his? And these are just some thoughts. The first one is old keys won't unlock new doors. See, some of us were living our old ways of thinking, believing, and, and perceiving society and wondering why we're not stepping into the fullness of the kingdom. We have to be people who look for new keys if we're trying to get through new doors. And so I want to encourage you, if you're somebody who you're really struggling, I would really ask you in this moment, evaluate your choices, evaluate your decisions, evaluate your directions, because if you're just using your old life, expecting a new one, that's not how this works. It's sanctification on purpose. 
The second thing, revelation leads to revolution. Some of us were so dissatisfied with our lives and we want this revolution of sorts that leads into new areas and we don't seek any revelation that can lead there. The Bible is the greatest revelatory tool that you could ever get. You could ever get it. It's the greatest revelatory tool if you look at it from the lens of, man, this is something that I'm going to model my life after. And some of you guys, maybe you're super confused on the Bible. I'll recommend an incredible book, How to Not Read the Bible by Darren Kimball. It's an incredible book that oversees and does an incredible job at unpacking the Bible from an aerial point of view. But once again, some of us, we're looking for revolution and we're not seeking any revelation. That's not how it works. We've got to be people who seek information and wisdom that allows us to lead revolution in our lives. And the last one is this, how much sacrifice are you willing to walk through following Jesus? Because a lot of us want to follow Jesus and forget he died on a cross. And there were some quotes that I really found um, important. Eugene Peterson says, following Jesus doesn't get us to where we want to go. It gets us to where Jesus goes. See, some of us, we come to God and we go, all right, God, I want to follow you. And then the moment that it takes a turn that we don't agree with is the moment that we get out of the vehicle. And what I'm saying is, is that I pray that we would be able to pray a prayer today of God. I'll follow you where you want to go, not where I want to go. Trusting that where you're taking me is better than where I could take myself. A.W. Tozer says, don't confuse motion with progress. See, some of us, we're all about the motions and not about the progress. Progress is measurable success. Can we evaluate our lives and see measurable success in which maybe in previous seasons, all we've seen is motions and two inches forward and four inches back? My closing thing is I wrote this a few nights ago. I was falling asleep, and this is just how the Lord does it sometimes, is I've just been in a season of just kind of <laughs> hyperactivity, it feels like. Um, me and my wife, obviously, you know, being on the other side, but it's just different when you're not around family and people who can just help you whenever you need. It's just kind of all on you, it feels like. And I remember I wrote this a few nights ago just as this book I was reading had conjured up some thoughts as I was falling asleep, and I just want to read it to you. And I wrote on the top, read slow, Micah. <laughs> What even are the benchmarks of a faith-filled life following Jesus and walking in a relationship with the Holy Spirit? Sports and work feel like they have replaced devotion, and devotion today barely includes church attendance. Loving your neighbor now feels like loving your political party. Facebook articles and algorithms of information replaced the word of God. Community is now who has the same stance on the vax as you. Following God looks more like grocery shopping at the store, picking up what appeases our lifestyle and forgetting the spiritual hygiene section in the process. The Holy Spirit mostly leads us in a path of least resistance and even lesser fulfillment. If we don't like the message, we can go somewhere we do. If we don't like the worship, we can just show up late, Matt. <laughs> Actually, if we don't like anything or anyone, we can just say we are the church and do our own thing or create our own version of the church that fits our heightened spirituality. 
the only thing really left for the enemy to take is the supreme authority of Scripture, and even that feels like it's starting to truly sink and erode because most Christians can't even remember the last time they've read their Bible alone. G.K. Chesterton said it best, Christianity has died and been resurrected many times throughout history, for it follows a man who knows the way out of the grave. May we choose to not see a funeral where God sees a party, a cemetery where God sees a garden, a death sentence where God sees a miracle. It's not yours, mine, ours. It's God. You have everything. Let's stand to our feet.